Yeah, you can clap. That's all right. When you think of when Jesus' love ran red so that our sins could be made white. Amen? And uh, we've been talking about sin the last few weeks. Uh, in fact, as we continue in uh, our journey with Joshua, as we continue in chapter 7, it's about sin. But I'm glad that it's not just about sin, but that there's purification from sin. Amen? Amen. And uh, that we can be white towards God. He can look on us and not see our sin. That's an amazing thought, and that's why we're here. I was encouraged just to hear uh, Michael's testimony, weren't you? To to hear uh, just the passion and the zeal. And I'm glad to see that there's a Bible college that's not just teaching people only to be students, but they're teaching people how to go out and start churches. Isn't that exciting? I I think there's a great need for churches. And I have to admit, I I agree. Uh, When we were in Bible college... We uh, vacationed. We were on our way to Maine. I think it was it Vermont where we stopped uh, at, at, for a church on the way up there. Somewhere between Pennsylvania and Maine, we stopped at a church. And, uh, and I thought, wow, how in the world can this little church reach, uh, reach the people? And they, there wasn't a heart for evangelism. There wasn't a heart for anything. I'll tell you, it is a cold place, isn't it? One good place to start might be in Washington, D.C., I'm just saying. But. <laughs> yeah, that's technically northeast too, right? So... Um, yeah, there, there, there's a real need for, for God in America, too. And I, I know that we send out missionaries and we send, uh, we send people out, but I just want us to keep in mind that there's a mission field right here and uh, right down the street with Streams of Hope. And all the way around us, we, we see people every day that need God. And so be out there. Get the message out. Uh, don't, don't leave it just for our college agers. Every one of us should be out there doing that. Amen? Amen. And uh, so let's... Uh, Continue with that. As we, as we uh, go back into uh, Joshua chapter 7, we're in the, uh, the conquest phase of Joshua, which is an exciting time, but we're at the, at the first failure. They, they defeated uh, the, t- the town of Jericho. They defeated the city there. Well, we should say the Lord defeated the city there. Uh, but then all of a sudden things change when we get to Ai. And even though Ai is a smaller community, smaller town, of course, we see the failure, and uh, 36 men died as they ran away from Ai. The basic structure, um, as we uh, come to, to, uh, to Joshua chapter 7, uh, even though we focus on Achan, who stole the, the uh, devoted things, the accursed things, we realize that right from verse 1 in the, in the introduction, that the sin was on both parts of Israel and Achan. So Israel sinned and Achan sinned. And, and in verses 2 through 5, which we've already talked about, we talked about Israel's sin. We talked about Achan's sin in verses 16 through 26. And right in the middle, we find this conversation between Joshua and God. We found that Israel's sin was that of self-reliance. If you remember, in the first few verses of the chapter, Israel said, well, let's just go into Ai. We don't need everybody to go. Let's send two or 3,000 men since it's a small town. And uh, let's just send a few people. And did they even include God in the decision-making process? Did God tell them to go there? Did not. In fact, they didn't even bring the Ark of the Covenant with them. They left God out of the equation. We found that this was the sin, really, of conceit when they thought they could handle it on their own. We saw that sin in, uh, in uh, the next few verses with the conversation with God, we have uh, in verses 6 through 9, Joshua talks with God and we found five temptations that we can fall into when things go wrong. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And then uh, last week, we looked at what God said in response. And you remember what, what, uh, what God had given them? He gave them three tools 
for sanctification from sin. Do you remember what they were? The first one? The first one was conviction. He, he, he asked them to take a day and just sanctify themselves, examine themselves, and look for sin within, within themselves. Do you think Achan had anything on his mind that day? We also found the second tool was the confrontation. He told them to sanctify each other. In other words, start confronting each other. Get involved in each other's life. Find out where the sin is and get rid of it. And, uh, and then there was chastisement. The Lord even used, he did this in a very public way. If you remember what we talked about last week, where he called the entire nation of Israel together, and then he separated them by tribes, and he said that the guilty person is within the tribe of Judah. But while everyone's still watching, there's Achan somewhere in the tribe of Judah with an opportunity to repent, and what does he do? He sits there quiet, hoping that they call, he calls on somebody else. And he does the same thing, goes from tribe down to, to clan, down to the family, and right down to the man. Multiple opportunities Achan had to repent of his sin, and he did not, he did not respond to any of them. Today, we're going to talk about something that comes really after that. And today, we're going to see what happens when a person refuses all three of those tools that the Lord has provided. When, when they, they refuse to respond to conviction, they re- refuse to respond to confrontation, they refuse to respond to chastisement. We're going to find today uh, a passage that deals with the topic of condemnation in verses 20 through 26. So let's read that together. In Joshua chapter 7, we'll read verses 20 through 26 together. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver underneath it. By the way, here I think we, we get a, a real micro, microscope understanding of what sin is. And we'll talk about that in the next week. We see these, the process of what led him to sin. But we'll talk about that in another week. Verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the sons of Zerah, the silver, the, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. How many of you have a hard time reading that? There's something inside that says, wow. You you see see a a new side of God that you don't always see. Anyone else or is it just me? Okay, so there's two of us. All right. All right, well, let's go to uh, Joshua chapter 8 then. No, I'm just of course not. There's something there that, that we look at that and we say, doesn't that seem like um, a severe penalty for a sin that in our standard doesn't seem like such a severe sin? 
uh, when you consider that they've been wandering around for 40 years, they haven't even had walls around them, and he finally sees a nice garment. He wants a nice garment. He sees some gold and silver. It belonged to pagans who are, who are dead now. But the Lord said, no, this is the first city. It was the principle of first fruits. You are not to take anything from the first city. And it was a sign that you're going to trust that God was going to continue to provide. And God said, don't do it. Don't touch it. Don't keep the city. Don't live there. Don't let anyone live there ever again. This is dedicated to the Lord so that you remember who gave you these victories. What he didn't realize is that God had all sorts of things ready for him, starting in Ai. Things for him. But instead, he took matters into his own hands. But then we look at how God treated him and what was going on, and we realize, wow, that's a strong punishment. You know, the roots of this punishment of stoning people for their sin um, did not start in Joshua chapter 7. So if you can keep a finger there, we're, we're going to go um, back to the roots of this. It goes all the way back to Numbers, um, uh, Numbers chapter uh, 15. And we're going to see how this, uh, this process of going from conviction to confrontation to chastisement and eventually right down to condemnation takes place. But the roots of this go all the way back to Numbers 15. The word says, But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or foreigner, blasphemes the Lord and must be cut off from the people of Israel. Because they have despised the Lord's word and broken his commandments, they must surely be cut off, and their guilt remains on them. Skip just a few verses ahead. In verse 35, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, The man must, what does it say? Die. The man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. Wow. Strong words. Strong punishment. But there's a key word I want us to think of, and, and, uh, and, and it goes all the way back to verse 30. It says, but anyone who sins, what does it say? Defiantly. See, there's a, we find here a classification of sin in a sense. This, this isn't just a sin, this is a defiant sin. What, what, what is a defiant sin? What does it mean, what does it mean to, to sin defiantly? You know, if you actually look at the word, it's the, it's the opposite of sinning in ignorance. Now think about that for a second. Is it possible to sin in ignorance? It's, is it still sin? Yes, it is. You can sin. You can do something that offends God. You can be completely ignorant of it, and, you're, and it's a sin. And God recognizes it as sin. And, and, and there's, uh, we, can't, we can't explain it away. We can't say, well, I didn't know, so I'm, I'm not guilty. In fact, if you try that with a police officer, does it work? If you say, well, I didn't know that the speed limit was 35. That's why I was going 70 miles an hour, right? You, you, can, you try and use that with a, with a police officer, and what do they say? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Exactly. There's no excuse for the ignorance uh, uh, of the law. And uh, it's the same way with God. You can sin ignorantly of what you're doing that's wrong, and it's still sin. This word is talking about sins. That is really the opposite, opposite of that. It is a willful decision to go against God. A willful decision to go against God. In Psalms, we find it described as shaking your fist at God. In the same context of words described as a defiant sin. Why? Uh, why? It's a willful decision to go against God. When you have conviction, confrontation, chastisement and you shake your fist at God and say but I'm going to do this I'm going to do this anyway 
Uh, I, there was a saying that I remember in college that some of the, the guys would use, and they would say, it is easier to get forgiveness than permission. Have you ever heard that? It's easier to get forgiveness than permission. I hope that after we read what uh, Joshua 7 says for us today, we would never fall for that idea. If you plan for a sin, in fact, uh, in, uh, in the Catholic Church, uh, law, uh, quite some time ago, they would have, give you opportunities to plan your sins ahead of time. And you could buy your sins, or the forgiveness for those sins ahead of time. And if you paid for them ahead of time, you could actually get a discount on that. Right? So you could plan on, okay, I'll, I'm going to commit that sin, but it's going to cost me this. And they put price tags on those things. Actually, if you look at some of the price tags of those, they call them indulgences. It's amazing, uh, some of the things. You know, so you could get by with saying things repeti- uh, repetitiously, um, and that will take care of your adultery. But if you slap a priest, you're still going to be put to death. Right? shows you that man has a tendency to mess things up, don't we? we, we God tells us what justice is, and we mess it up. But that concept is not a concept that comes from Scripture. That, oh, well, we can plan our sins in advance, do our sins, and then ask for forgiveness later. That's why, as we heard last week, uh, uh, the Proverbs, the Japanese proverb that said, true repentance uh, is never late, but late repentance is seldom true. Because if you're planning on it, then you're not really sorry, right? And so, um, so that's what we see. We see a person who has gone through conviction, gone through confrontation, gone through chastisement, and still says, no, Lord, I am not going to do it. And so God brings along some type of condemnation. Now you might be asking, wait a second, if a person goes through conviction, a person goes through uh, confrontation, did this just die? I think this just died. Oh, nope, it worked. All right, so maybe I have to point it in a certain spot. But it goes through, uh, through all of those and then experiences condemnation. Now many of you, and I hope you are asking, many of you are saying, wait a minute, doesn't Romans say something about believers and condemnation? What does Romans say? In fact, that we find that in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, we read, and Paul wrote this, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How many of you are in Christ Jesus? And so what are we saying about that? We don't have to have condemnation. Amen? Isn't that an exciting thing? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation. And as a a believer, that's an exciting thing. I want to take us to another verse, but I don't want you to let go of that. So hang on to Romans 8, 1 and 2 with one hand. Um, but don't let go of that for a second. But I want you to, to, to let go with one hand and grab hold of another verse because I think we need to hang on to these two ideas and put them together. So hang on to Romans uh, 8, 1 and 2, but also look at 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul, same author, wrote this. He said, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, talking about the church in Corinth, and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So there's someone in the church in Corinth involved in in gross sexual sin that even in the world they condemn that, but the church wasn't. In fact, what you find in verses 2 through 4 is not even addressing the man. In verses 2 through 4, Paul is addressing the church, saying, how can you be proud when you guys aren't doing your job of confrontation? 
which, by the way, is one of the tools of sanctification. God has given us conviction. He has given us each other to confront our, each other in sin. And Paul said to the Corinthian church, part of your problem, part of the reason you have people falling into this level of sin is because you're not doing your job of confronting your brothers and sisters. You're teaching the truth and, and you're loving, but you have to do both of those. You can't do one without the other. We can love people and ignore their sin. That's not really love, is it? Or we can teach the truth and expose someone's sin and we can do it without loving them. And that's not right either, is it? That's why the Bible is so clear. We have to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. But then we look at what Paul said about this man. He said, hand this man over to whom? Is that strong language? Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Let's hold these two, two truths together. As a believer, there is no condemnation. If you are saved, you will go to heaven. Your sins are forgiven. It doesn't matter what you've done. You are on your way to heaven. At the same time, we have a situation where a man has been defiant in his sin, and God says, I am going to allow this person to experience what condemnation is like with the hopes of bringing him back to God. So if a person makes it through all the way to that level of condemnation, then what we find is one of two things has to be true. One is it's possible that the person wasn't a believer. Does the Bible ever say that wolves enter into the sheep's fold? Yes, it does. So a person can think they're saved. A person can maybe even say a prayer, but never accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And it's possible that they go right through the, the process and even lose their fellowship in the church. If you look at Matthew 18, it's possible that someone's not a believer, what's the other possibility? Well, that, it's a, that God is allowing you to taste condemnation with the purpose of bringing you to repentance. And so we see this, we see this example many times in Scripture. In fact, I'd like to use uh, the example of David today because David is kind of the antithesis to Achan. Achan is a man who God looked at him and he condemned him and in a... In a very public way, David is a man that God has great accolades. In fact, the greatest accolades I could think of for God to say towards any man, God said those towards David. We're going to read a couple of them. But we look at that and, uh, and we see. Let, I just want to give three examples of how this whole process is supposed to work. We don't have to turn there, but in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 7, if you remember, Saul was chasing David. You remember that story? Saul's going after David. He was jealous because David had killed his tens of thousands and Saul had only killed his thousands and the women were singing his praises and Saul wanted the women to sing his praises. And so he was very jealous. So he chases David. What he doesn't realize, one night he decides to hide in a cave, but David was already hiding in that cave. You know the story? And so Dave, David being, I'm sure, quite the spelunker, right? he's spent a lot of time out in caves, he knows his way around caves, he, could, he snuck right up to Saul, and he had an opportunity to kill Saul, but instead he decides to cut off a part of his robe. And then Saul, Saul goes, leaves, and so David did this to show, hey, Saul, guess what? I had you in my hands. I could have killed you. And at that moment, what we read in, in, uh, in 1 Samuel 24 it says that David's heart condemned him. What tool is that? 
conviction. It says David's heart condemned him and he apologized. That's, that's conviction. That's conviction. It's all it took for David. In fact, what you find that's the MO for David. The majority of his life, the Lord would convict him of his sin and he would change. Most of the time. All the time? No. That's why I'm going to share a couple more examples. <laughs> if we look at 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 13, this is the story of David and Bathsheba. If you remember in chapter 12, verse 1, it very clearly says this was the time when David was supposed to go off to war. But instead, he sends every male in the palace. Think about that. Every male he sent away to war while he stayed home. So the odds are in his favor. He can find someone, right? <laughs> okay. So David sends them all away. And from the roof of his palace, it says he gets up in the evening, which tells you a little bit of what his sleeping pattern was like while he was taking his vacation from war. And in that moment, he sees a woman bathing. And she was very beautiful. And he lusts after her. You know the story. So he sends someone, hey, find out who that girl is. So he sends someone and comes back and says, Dave, I got bad news for you. She's married. Not only is she married, she's married to one of the 30. Remember, David had his closest men. These were the 30. They're like the secret service. These guys were incredible, and uh, they were so faithful, they would easily lay down their life for David. And they say, this is Uriah's wife. And guess what? Her dad, another one of the 30. Oh, no. So, man, doubly related to the 30. Do you think conviction was taking place during that time? Well, it should have been. And I'm sure that there was some conviction going on, but did he respond to that conviction? No. What did he tell his messengers? Go get her for me. Bring her to me. Conviction didn't work, but in chapter 12, we find Nathan the prophet coming up to David. And he tells him a story about a man who had all these sheep. He had tons and tons of sheep. A visitor was coming to his house. He wanted to sacrifice a sheep so he could make a dinner. So he goes to his neighbor, who only has one sheep, loved that sheep, treated it like a family pet, lived in their house. And he steals that sheep from him so that he could provide a meal for his friend who's coming into town. And David immediately pronounces a verdict and a sentence. He says he's guilty. He deserves to, he deserves to die. And then Nathan points his finger and says, David, it's you. You're that man. Confrontation. How did David respond? Oh, I have sinned. If you read Psalm 51, it says that uh, he said that when that happened, his, his bones ate because he was so repentant of his sin. Have you ever been there? Where you looked at and you saw your, your sin, you got a glimpse of your sin in the same way that God sees your sin, and for that moment you just wish, I am so sorry for what I did. And that's what, that's what we see with David when, when conviction didn't work, confrontation worked. I can only think of, and I could be wrong, but I've, I've read the story of David multiple times. And David usually responds with conviction. A couple of times he, has, he responds to confrontation. But if we go to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24, we find the one time it actually goes to the next level. David knew, he, he was told, don't count your fighting men. He, it was written in God's word. It was written in the law, which David had written from, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. He had to write it out with his own hand, so he knew it well. 
He, he meditated in it day and night. He knew God's word. And God said, don't count your army. Why? Because it's not about numbers. It's not about the size of your enemy versus the size of who you have. I don't want you using that in, in the equation. Just do what I tell you to do. And he knew that as soon as we start counting our armies, we're going to start using that as a factor in the decision making, right? So God said, don't do it. In fact, David, of all people, should have known by this point that it's not about the size of your enemy or the size of your enemy. It's about whose side God is on, right? And David, in his pride, thought, I want to know how many people we have. I want to know the numbers. And so he, he commands Joab to number the troops. Conviction didn't work there for him, did it? Should it have? It was like the first filter didn't work, but that's why we have a second filter. And Joab comes up to David, and what does Joab say? He says, David, do not do this disgraceful thing against God. Confrontation. But this time, David rejects what Joab said. He says, I'm going to do it anyway. And he does it anyway. He counts the men. There's one point something million people. He, he was impressed. He impressed himself with the size of his army. And immediately then, it says that the spirit convicted him. And the Lord comes to him and, and he said, I have sinned. Can I, what's with that? Lord, I didn't ask for, for permission, but so I'm going to ask for forgiveness now. You know, kind of plan for this. And God says, I'm going to give you three options, David. Two of them involve, really involve all of Israel. Two of them are going to hurt Israel. Or the third, or one of the options is, your enemies are going to pursue you and you're going to have to run away from them for three months. You remember what David's response to that was? It's kind of a, a real disingenuous answer. He says, Lord, I would rather put myself in your hands. Your merciful hands, remind you, Lord, in case you forgot. Your merciful hands, they're merciful. I would rather put myself in your hands than have to fall into the hands of man. What's he really saying? Punish Israel, don't punish me. Thinking, oh, I'm going to get forgiven. The Lord in his mercy is going to totally forgive me, and, and he's planning for it. And God says, no. He, God called his bluff. And he sent the plague. 70,000 people die because of David's sin. Then we find David saying, I have sinned once again. But this time it's not, hey, Lord, I've sinned. It was, surely I have sinned. And the Lord, repent, re, re, not repented, but re, re, uh, reinstated uh, his relationship with, with David and restored Israel again. It's that, that chastisement. And we see, uh, see the Lord using chastisement in David's life. But yet, at the end of the day, when you look at Acts 15, when, when David is described, it says, and, and when he had removed him, when talking about when God had removed Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. I read the story of David, and then I see God's impression of him, and I say, something's not right in the way I'm thinking. And if I'm not thinking the same way God's thinking, then who's right and who's wrong? That's a rhetorical question. Who's right and who's wrong? God's right and I'm wrong, right? Uh, of course. And so I'm thinking, something's not right. Because I look at that and I, and I say, um, David was a man after God's own heart? I mean, he committed some pretty, pretty bad sins. 
And it helps me realize that I believe that sometimes I think we have an incorrect understanding of what it means to be spiritual. We have an incorrect understanding of spirituality. You know, in churches today, we have this idea, and we look at someone, and we say, oh, this person's a spiritual person, or that person is a spiritual person. And I think that we have the wrong idea. In fact, there's a lot of different ideas out there of what spirituality really is. Um, And when when you look at some of what our ideas of spirituality are, in fact, one um, might take, uh, is is a person who is just vocal, is constantly out there, uh, you know, maybe we could use the word Bible thumper. You know, a Bible thumper. No, that must be a very spiritual person, right? Well, a spiritual person is going to tell people about Jesus, isn't he? But does that mean that every person that's out there proclaiming is spiritual? Not necessarily. Or, or take the guy up in the upper right-hand corner. He's, he's uh, very contemplative and meditating and, and brags, maybe, maybe a guy who brags about his uh, prayer closet or something like that. Now, is a spiritual person going to pray? Is a spiritual person going to meditate? You bet. But can that also be faked? Yeah, that can be faked. Or, or uh, take the guy in the, the bottom left. Uh, his uh, sign there says, holier than thou. And a lot of times I think we define spirituality by, by how conservative we might be, how strict we might be. And if a person is really strict, you know, then oh, that's a really spiritual person. I don't know. I'm probably stepping on some toes here because I've stepped on my own all week as I've been thinking through this, because sometimes I do that. I judge people. But, but can a person become very strict in their outward behavior without being spiritual? They can. And sometimes, uh, there are the people that you find out later on that they struggle with all sorts of things we never knew about, right? Or take the person in the bottom right to, who's just, it's, it, it may be that emotional, a spiritual person who just has this mystical, spiritual, emotional connection uh, to, to the Lord. And I'll tell you what, if you are a spiritual person, there will be emotions involved. Amen? But can that be faked too? Or can that be misdirected too? And so I, what I want us to do is, is take all of those things and, and get rid of them today. And what I want to do today is talk about what spirituality is not and that we, that we see from the text today and what spirituality is from what we learn uh, from the text today. I'll start with what spirituality is not. Spirituality has nothing to do with the severity of our sins. Think about that for just a second. Spirituality has nothing to do with the severity of our sins. Think about Achan versus David for a moment. If you were to compare the sin of stealing some gold and silver and a garment versus David's sin of committing adultery with Bathsheba and killing the husband so that no one would find out about it. On your scale, be honest, on your scale, whose sins are more severe? David's. But what did, they, what did God say about David? Oh, there's a man after my own heart. What did God say about Achan? This guy doesn't have, is not worth letting him live. So something is different there. It has nothing to do with that. David's sins were greater. <coughs> In fact, I want to go back to what we read earlier, Numbers 15, when we read about the stoning. Um, I did skip over verses 32 through 34. Do you think that those are important verses? They are important verses. In fact, so we read this where it talks about if anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or foreigner, blasphemes the Lord and must be cut off from the people of Israel. Because they have despised the Lord's word and broken his commands, they must surely be cut off and their guilt remains in them. Let's read the next verse. What we read here is uh, what we didn't read earlier, verses 32 through 34. It says, while the Israelites were in the wilderness... 
A man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. Now we come back to verse 35. What does it say? Then the, then, then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. Now wait a second. Did we just hear that right? His, his crime was gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Now, how many of you are a little bit more afraid of God today? <laughs> like, wait a minute. If that's his sin, and he received that punishment, and then we think, what are all the sins that I've done this week, or all the sins that you've done this week, I think, oh man, we're in trouble, right? Anyone feel that yet? I, I felt that studying this. I felt that. What we have to understand is our, it, it has nothing to do with the severity of our sins. In fact, what did it have to do with? I mean, when you, when you look at, at uh, what was going on, what, what does it have to do with? It has everything to do with the severity of our defiance. It's interesting, when we think about church discipline, we don't like to talk about church discipline too much, do we? But it's commanded in Scripture. In Matthew 18, it says, if you see a brother in sin, does it say if you see a brother in a major sin? It says, if you see a brother in sin, what are you supposed to do? Confront him. What is that? One of the tools of sanctification. If, if he repents of his sin, it says you won your brother. It's over. Sin is gone. Right? He deals with it, it's gone. But if he doesn't repent of his sin, what do you, you bring two or three witnesses together. If he repents, great. If not, what do you do? You bring it to the congregation. If he repents, great, he's restored. If not, then you cast him out with the hopes that being out there where Satan has his, he'll be out in Satan's realm. That's what 1 Corinthians 5 says. That hopefully that, hopefully that will bring him back. You know, it, it, it's interesting to me that it never, it doesn't say, well, if a person's guilty of, and we have our list of sins and the order of things that we think that they're bad, right? It doesn't say that. It might be a small sin. But if it's a small sin and you say, yeah, but this is just a small sin, so I'm going to tolerate it. And God convicts you of it and you do nothing. God sends someone to confront you for that sin and you do nothing. God chastises you and you do nothing. God may then let you taste even condemnation. Why? Because he can't let you go on thinking that there's such a thing as tolerable sins. There's a book on that uh, called Tolerable Sins. How many of you have read that book? All right, more people should read that book, all right? Because the, the whole point is that there really should be no such thing as tolerable sins. It has everything to do with the severity of our defiance and how we respond to the Spirit, right? When you think about it, uh, um, I'm going to compare David and Saul because the, the Scriptures compares these two, and I'm just going to fly through this, but when you look at Saul, what were his great sins? Great sins that Saul did. Number one, he offered a sacrifice when the priest was late. He didn't want to send those soldiers off to battle without offering the sacrifice. The priest said he'd be there. The priest wasn't there. And Saul offered the sacrifice in place of the priest. Uh, another one of the great sins of, of his uh, is he made a rash oath in the heat of battle. Um, and so they were winning the battle, and he said, don't anyone else eat until we wipe these people out, until we win this victory. He said, he said nobody should eat. Little did he know, Jonathan hadn't heard that. Jonathan ate some honey, 
And so he was ready to kill his son over it to keep that vow. He made a rash vow. Leviticus 5, 4 says, don't make rash. You need to think through those vows. Number three, he spared the life of King Agag. Remember, God said, wipe out this town. Wipe them out. Don't let any of them survive. He let King Agag survive. He let some of the animals survive. Uh, And those were the sins of Saul. Are they sin? Yes. But when you compare those to some of David's, where he counted his men in disobedience, we talked about that day where he ignored Uriah's marriage vow. Instead of just making a trivial vow, he ignored uh, the the marriage vow. And instead of uh, sparing someone he shouldn't have, he killed someone that he shouldn't have. Which, Which is worse in your mind? Sparing someone who should die or killing someone who was innocent? I don't know about you, but I think killing someone who's innocent is worse. It's not the severity of the sins that matter. In fact, what we find that God took away Saul's kingdom and gave it to David. But what we do find is every time Saul was confronted, every time, we never see Saul being convicted, by the way, on his own, not once. But we see him being confronted multiple times, and every time, what did he do? He made excuses, shifted the blame. Oh, the soldiers didn't spare the king under my command. But the soldiers didn't, they, they, didn't, or they didn't kill the king. Well, why are all these animals alive? Well, we are going to sacrifice them to the Lord. <laughs> excuse after excuse after excuse. It's not the severity of the sin that affected his spiritual relationship with God. It was his defiance to all the tools that God put in his life to bring him to him. With David, how did he respond? Every time he regretted his actions and he repented of his sins. Though they were greater sins, every time we see repentance and we see God in his graciousness forgiving David of everything. Even to the point where the scripture says in 1 Chronicles, it says that there was no sin. He, he served me. Now, that doesn't mean that he never committed any sins, but it, when, when it says that in, in, or in uh, 2 Chronicles, when it says that, what is it saying? It's saying every sin that David ever committed, they're blotted. They're out of God's memory. That's the mercy that we have available. But it's when we respond. Some of you might be here, and that's good news. There might be some people in here, that's great news. Because maybe you're guilty of a lot of things. Maybe you carry a past, and I'm here to tell you, that past can be gone. Gone. I met a man... uh, uh, on Friday night, uh, I was at I was at my brother's church. Um, he had a celebrate recovery uh, ministry, so they work with people who are addicts of all kinds. And I got had the opportunity to meet a, a man named Mike. A year ago, he came to celebrate recovery and asked my brother a question. He said, "Do you think I'm going to hell?" By the way, my brother thought he was a woman. I'll just say that. He said, "Do you think I'm going to hell because I'm gay?" That's a year ago. Today, he's given his testimony. How the Lord has freed him from his past. My brother has a video of of when he brought all of his female clothes and gave it to a woman in need because he said, I don't need these anymore. But you know, in our minds, sometimes we think, well, certain sins are worse than others, and certain sins might might disgust us more, and this and that. And so we, we we put them on a different level, and we say, these are... You know what? God can save you from those too. Amen? Amen? God can save you from any of those things. It's not the severity of the sin 
It's not the severity of the sin. It's how you respond when the Holy Spirit convicts you of the sin. And, uh, and we see that. We see that. And so, really, the, I think the, the way we could word we could word this to, to really understand what spirituality is. Spirituality has everything to do with how our spirit responds to the spirit. That's what spirituality is. It's not about how how disciplined your life can be, although the Lord will help you discipline it. It's not about how emotional you can you know how much you can show your emotions, although it will be an emotional thing when you when you think and contemplate the, what the Lord is. In all of those things, we see that, that it's really about how do we respond when the Lord convicts us? How do we respond when that doesn't work? And we have to go to the second filter, and God sends us someone like a Nathan to confront us in our sin. How do we respond when that doesn't work, and the Lord has to chasten us? says he chastens his own. Or even if he has to uh, uh, allow us to experience what condemnation is like for a little while. And how do you respond? So I want to ask you today, how do you respond when the Holy Spirit convicts you? Do you suppress it? Do you push it down and just kind of set it aside? Because the more you do that, the easier it is to no longer even hear when the Holy Spirit's convicting you of your sin. In fact, I can honestly say if, if, you, can't, if you can't think of anything that the Lord has convicted you of, then guess what? You're long past the conviction stage. How do you respond when the Lord convicts you and the Holy Spirit tells you that wasn't right, what you're doing is not right? How do you respond with confrontation? Do you respond like Saul with excuses, justifications? Oh, it's not so bad. It's a tolerable sin. Or do you respond more like David? Do you respond like Achan, who wouldn't even admit his sin until it was narrowed down to him? How do you respond when others confront you in your sin? Uh, sorry, I got ahead of myself. Let me put them up here. <laughs> of what has the Lord been convicting you? Of what has the Lord been convicting you? To What are your tolerable sins? What are the sins that in your mind, because you've had this idea that, that spirituality is based on the severity of sins, so you've tolerated little sins because you think, well, at least I'm... I'm, I'm I'm avoiding all the big sins because I, I know that there's many of us that have fallen for that. And if you fall in that, you've fallen for the lie. But what are your tolerable sins? Think about them for a moment. How do you respond when others confront you in your sin? How do you respond? Do you respond with, the, with excuses and justification? Or do you take it as a tool that God's using to change you? Next question, has the Lord been chastising you to get you back on track? You know, bad things can happen in your life for all sorts of reasons, so that doesn't mean that every time something bad happens, the Lord is trying to, to, to punish you. But is some of the things that he's allowing in your life, is he doing some of that to get you back on track? I saw the Lord doing that with, with my brother who went, uh, went the wrong way in his life. And, and, uh, and he, was, he had a job where he was, his Christmas bonus was more than my annual salary. <laughs> you know, he had one of those kinds of jobs. And when he went the wrong way, you could just see the thumb of God in his life chastising him. And I remember him telling me a year and a half or so ago, to Dave, I clean bathrooms at the types of places where I used to work. <laughs> Maybe God's chastising you. 
Number five, if, if you've been experiencing any type of condemnation, first of all, is it because you're not a true believer? Or is it because God is allowing you to experience that condemnation to bring you back to Him? You know what? There might be some people here that, that you may have heard the gospel, maybe never heard the gospel before. Like uh, many of the people in, in, uh, in New England never heard the gospel. But I'm here to let you know today that I don't care how deep your sins are, I don't care how severe your sins are, guess what? There's mercy. Jesus Christ died on the cross. We sang about this today to pay for your sins. Amen. And you can walk out sinless. You can walk out where, where God would say of you, oh, this is, my, this is my son. This is my daughter. Sinless. As God brags on you. Why? Because those sins could be blotted out. Or maybe you're even in that stage where you're saying, you know what, the Lord, the Lord is letting me experience condemnation because it's time for me to come home. It's time for me to come home. So if, if that's you, that you're, if, you're not, if you're not sure that you're saved, will you make it right today? Will you come forward and I'll have someone share with you from God's word how you can know for sure you have eternal life? There's nothing more important than knowing where you're going to spend eternity. Let's bow our heads for a moment, close our eyes. I want to give you a chance to answer those questions in your own heart. Today, instead of having a normal altar call, I'm just going to ask you to stay right in your seats. No one's paying attention to you. Everyone's paying attention to their own, their own heart. I want to ask you, has the Lord gotten a hold of your heart? Are there any tolerable sins in your life that you need to get rid of? If that's you, if you can say, Pastor Dave, the Lord is, is talking to me. He's speaking to me about something. Just quietly, just, can you just raise your hand for a minute? I'm not going to ask anyone else to look around and say, look, the Lord, the Lord is speaking to me. There is something in my heart. I see hands going up. Praise the Lord. Yeah, once you put it up, you can put it down. Fantastic. Let the Lord do a work in your heart. I've got good news for you, too. No matter how severe those sins are that the Lord has brought to your attention, if you confess those today, they're gone. Let's take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are holy, sinless. But at the same time, you love us enough to forgive us of those sins. Oh, yes, a price had to be paid. Lord, I thank you so much that I didn't have to pay it, but that Jesus paid that price for me. And Lord, we, we rely on that mercy, on that grace for the forgiveness of sins today. And Lord, even as people right here, right now, are confessing sins to you, I thank you for that mercy. And Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you yet, I pray they would come up to me afterwards so that they can know that they have eternal life. And I pray this in Christ's name.